When you were a kid, did you ever receive a coloring page where the image was all distorted? It's a special kind of picture. You cannot tell what the image is until you place a cylinder mirror in the middle of the page. Then, looking at the mirror, you can see what the true image of the picture was. It's called anamorphic art. There are other kinds of anamorphic art, like pictures which look a little strange when you view them straight on, the normal way, but make sense when you stand to the side of the frame. This artistic technique was developed during the Renaissance, and lately it's just been used in children's artistic games. Sometimes I think that the distorted image is how many of us view life much of the time. It's a little bit off, confusing, not very pretty. We are so distracted with the flurry of activity that we don't realize that we need to look at the mirror in the center, the Holy Spirit, to make the meaning become clear. What might we be missing? Now that we're in the season of Advent, I've been reflecting on the Christmas story. There's one character in Luke's gospel that I don't hear about very often. Elizabeth. My middle name is Elizabeth, so you would think I'd know a few things about her. But I'd always overlooked her. Until now. In the next few minutes, we're going to review the story Elizabeth, consider why she's so amazing, why we should emulate her, and how we might follow her example. So the story. You probably know it well, but let's just relive it together. Both Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were of priestly descent. This elderly couple lived in the hill country. Unfortunately, Elizabeth was barren, and she was beyond childbearing age. Well, Zechariah had a rare chance one day of serving in the Jerusalem temple as priest. And while inside, he had the even rarer chance of encountering an angel who foretold to him that his wife would bear a son. Zechariah doubted this extraordinary news, and the angel Gabriel was displeased by this and struck him mute for the duration of the pregnancy. When Zechariah exited the temple, nobody understood all the gestures he was making, but they figured out he'd seen a vision. Elizabeth probably figured out a few more details of that vision when, soon after, she conceived. Praising God for taking away her disgrace, she promptly went into seclusion. And during that time, Mary, her young relative, received a visit from the angel Gabriel as well. She, too, was to have a baby. Now, Elizabeth's pregnancy was miraculous because she was too old to have a baby. And Mary's pregnancy was miraculous because she was thus far celibate. When Mary wondered how this might happen, Gabriel gave Elizabeth's pregnancy as proof. For nothing will be impossible with God, the angel said. And so hearing this, she ran off to see Elizabeth. That's where today's text comes in. 
Now, out of seclusion, Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, feels her baby move within, and speaks a prophetic blessing over Mary. The part of Elizabeth's story that most astounds me is the fact that all it took was for her to hear Mary say hello, to feel her baby move, for her to know that the Lord had come. She said the child in her womb leaped for joy. What do you think that felt like? Did it hurt? Did it tickle? When I think about it in practical terms, it probably was just a kick. Babies move. After six months of development, mothers feel their babies kick. Maybe John moved with more force than usual. But still, how could she have known by an inward leap that young Mary was blessed with bearing the Messiah? Elizabeth never received an angelic annunciation of her own. Some commentators want to give John the credit. The unborn John, whom Gabriel had foretold would be full of the Holy Spirit and had a divine calling on his life, well, he was just living out his calling before he was born. One said, John can't wait, it seems, to get on with his mission. John starts pointing to the Messiah, even from the womb. Maybe. But let's give Elizabeth some credit. Perhaps John was cognizant of this nearby Jesus, and so he moved. But it's not like he whispered to his mother, Psst, Mom, he's the one. No, someone else whispered to Elizabeth. It seems to me that Elizabeth's spirit was so attuned to the Spirit of God that what others may have interpreted as a kick from the baby in the womb was to her a leap of joy, a leap that meant salvation had come. Like the way our hearts leap within us when we consider God's great mercy. That same verb appears in Luke 6.23 when Jesus talks about how in the last days we will leap for joy when our reward is great in heaven. And John will announce that eschatological gladness in chapter 3 of Luke. A new age has dawned. But for now, it was Elizabeth's understanding. Her spiritual intuition No one knew Mary was pregnant yet, but Elizabeth somehow knew to call him Lord. This was unprecedented. Her greeting is the first time Lord is applied to Jesus in this gospel. The word Lord is used 23 times in the birth narrative, but only in reference to God of Israel. Elizabeth gets to connect Jesus and the Lord God of Israel. This part of the story, the visitation, is often overlooked because the verses that follow it are so glorious. Encouraged by Elizabeth's blessing, Mary then launches into her own marvelous Magnificat, a song of praise to the Lord who lifts the lowly. It's said that people rub off on each other. 
Could it be that without Elizabeth's connection to the Spirit and words of thanksgiving, Mary would not have responded with such a beautiful hymn? I don't know. What I do know is Elizabeth is someone I want to emulate. I, too, want to be attuned. I want to realize when the Holy Spirit is saying that a kick means a jump for joy. When life appears distorted, I want the Holy Spirit mirror to help me understand what God is doing. The text gives us some clues on how we can emulate Elizabeth. Of course, it is up to the Spirit to communicate with us. We cannot force God to speak and to interpret life's events for us, but we can position ourselves so as not to miss what God already desires for us to experience and know. So how do we follow Elizabeth's example? First, we need to be holy. That's the first thing we learn about Elizabeth back in Luke 1, 6. She was righteous before God. Both she and Zechariah were blameless. Luke emphasizes that word so that we can be sure it wasn't her fault that she was barren. It's not exactly fun to assert that spiritual intuition may have something to do with one's own righteousness. We all know Jesus calls us to be holy. And anyway... There are several examples in scripture and history of people who were sinful but still were used by God. Zechariah, he was a tax collector. He'd been cheating people, but he still heard Jesus' voice. Jacob lied to his brother, cheated his dad, or vice versa. And he still got to father the tribes of Israel. However, people who encounter God are changed. And those who do not change, well, I'm guessing they don't hear God's voice often. Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. Some of us hear the word holy, and it makes us want to yawn. I mean, we know Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness that we are saved. And it's true that we can do nothing for our own salvation. But as soon as we accept that fact, Jesus calls us to deny self, take our cross, and follow him. Be holy, for I am holy. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy. We are to work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. No one is perfect. And praise God, Jesus was sent to intervene in our sinfulness. Though our sins were as scarlet, we are now made right in God's sight. Christ is our righteousness. With forgiveness from the cross, we are set free from worldly bondage. Still, you and I both know it is a daily decision, sometimes a moment-by-moment decision, whether we will choose righteousness or not. As we choose goodness, we position ourselves to hear the Spirit more clearly. What does it look like to be holy today? 
It means being faithful in the small things, doing good when it is easier to do nothing at all. Like washing the dishes as soon as you're done because a dirty kitchen always annoys your roommate. Or kindly listening to the person in church who seems to have a complaint every week. Being holy means understanding God's boundary lines in our lives and choosing not to toe the line, not because we're being legalistic or because we're fearful, but because we truly believe it is good for our souls to steer clear. Because of Jesus' mercy, we do things like hold our tongues when friends' conversations begin to tear someone down. We commit to sexual purity, even when it would be easy to do things and nobody would know about it. Holiness sounds like a lofty word, but everyday holiness is about infusing normal tasks with the love of God. Helen Keller said, I long to accomplish great and noble tasks, but it is my chief duty to accomplish humble tasks as though they were great and noble. Elizabeth was holy and radically humble. For disciples of Christ, those two go hand in hand. And after this, there was another discipline in Elizabeth's life which positioned her to be filled by the Spirit. And that is silence. The event in Elizabeth's life that immediately precedes this revelatory encounter with Mary is five months of seclusion. You see it in verse 24. It's a word that means she hid herself all around. No explanation is given. I don't know why she did it, but... I do think that it played a role in Elizabeth's special connection to God's Spirit. As Mary's visit brought her out of the secluded silence, Elizabeth was primed to hear the still, small voice of God. Picture the stars. We see them at night. But why can't we see them during the day? They're still there, beyond our atmosphere. We can't see them because our eyes adapt to the sun's light. That speck of light that a star makes against the background of deep space becomes invisible to us. Only at night do our eyes adjust so that the star's light become meaningful again. There really are certain environments which affect our ability to notice. The ancient desert fathers and mothers who fled their society so as to truly connect with God, they saw silence to be vital to their spirits. They believed silence was the atmosphere in which a spirit of prayerful awareness of God could thrive. There's a story about some brothers who went to visit Abba Pombo to question him about whether they were proceeding towards salvation. For four days, they questioned him, but received no answer. Discouraged, they were preparing to leave when Pombo's companion said, Don't be troubled. It is the old man's custom not to speak until he has been inspired by God. Eventually, Pombo did respond to them, asking certain questions about their lives and pointing out some observations. 
Upon hearing what he had to say, they went away joyfully. Silence provided the perspective with which really to see. And silence is not just for monks. We need it too. You know, silence is not really a new concept around here. I remember in Dr. York's class, him telling us not to be afraid of those times of silence in a worship service. Dr. Angela Reed has incorporated a silent retreat for all second-year covenant group members. Dr. Glore takes students every May to the New Mexico desert to experience a deep silence. Silence is important, but it's not easy to make happen for ourselves. It's a discipline. And we will not always have these professors in this place to require us to do what is good for us. Where will you find the space for silence in your life? So Elizabeth, she was righteous and humble. She practiced silence. And finally, she interpreted the situation with an eye towards God. Elizabeth, having been primed to be filled by the Spirit, understood that a kick really meant that God had intervened. She interprets the child's leap theologically. It's like she was ready to see God in the situation. God mindfulness. That's a good thing. And we're not talking about over-spiritualization, where every minute detail of life is seen as a message from God. No. What I'm thinking about is that guy who sensed his waitress was having a hard time and felt like God wanted him to be a blessing, and so he left a hefty tip on the table. Or that friend who called to say she'd been praying about you a lot lately and wasn't sure why. Was everything okay? Or that covenant group member who heard another member vent about a recent family argument and kindly pointed out some areas for needed growth. Or that pastor whom you visited who had the perfect verse for your situation. The poet Kathleen Norris said, It's the aim of Christian contemplative living that you learn to recognize a blessing when you see one. Have you been interpreting your life with a mind towards God lately? Above all, we want to be like Christ. But after him, Elizabeth is a pretty good model. The rewards of being like her are spiritual understanding, the opportunity to bless others, and the privilege of being part of God's story. Because Elizabeth lived during the time before Jesus was born, died, and rose, the Holy Spirit's presence in a person was rare. But after he ascended, the Spirit became available to us all. We too, as we allow the Spirit to work, we can have Elizabeth's speech, full of knowledge, humility, gratitude, and love. We can have an understanding and a peace about what's going on in the world around us. Ministers, simply because of our role, are often invited into important moments of people's lives. The day of birth, 
baptism, marriage, death? Why would we be included in people's most intimate circle? It's because people desire for us to offer a significant interpretation. Whether we deserve it or not, we are commissioned to point to the gracious presence of God on each of these unforgettable experiences and many more. I want to have spiritual intuition. I meet people all the time who really need someone to point out where God is working in their lives. When speaking to people about the gospel, I can sense my own limitation in communication. I get nervous about speaking at the right time and sharing Christ in a way that can be understood and a host of other excuses. But I think I can handle noticing God. With the Spirit's help, of course. Noticing requires less work, but it requires more connection to the Spirit. It may feel impossible. Our world has so many distractions. It's easy to get lost in the flurry, taking care of deadlines and to-do lists and obligations while missing the mirror in the center through which God shows us what is true and what matters. But we have God's Spirit, and we know that doing the work of righteousness, humility, and silence is worth it. Impossible? A virgin birth? Resurrection from the dead? From the beginning to the end of Jesus' story, God reveals his miraculous power to do the impossible. The angel said, nothing will be impossible with God. Elizabeth got to be a part of God's story of redemption. May the same be said of us. Amen.